Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you on this day, the Lord's day. We pray, Father, that you would guide us and direct us through this time together as we study your word. We know that we are not corporately together here in this local assembly, but Father, we know that we can still gather together through this means that we are using this day. And we know that we are able to worship you in truth and spirit wherever we might be. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would teach us this day. We continue to pray, Father, that you would watch over us as your children, that you would protect us during this time of crisis in our nation, that you would keep us well and safe, that you would be with each of our members, continue to use them during this time for your honor and glory and all that they do and say. We continue to pray for the salvation of the lost, that you would use this crisis to cause people to think about life and death and judgment. All of this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. If you would take your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 13. I hope you read this chapter last week. All I wanted to do is read two verses this morning, verse 1 and verse 2. Mark chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Then as he went out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what building are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now last week I gave an introduction to chapter 13. So today I want us to begin studying this passage by looking at these first two verses. Now, as we look at this, I want to remind you that there are various views pertaining to this chapter as we discussed last week. But there are primarily four views here of chapter 13. So let me share with you the four different views very quickly. First of all, that this chapter refers entirely to last things. Second, it refers to the event of A.D. 70 only. Third, it refers to the span of the first century all the way until Christ returns. Fourth, it refers to A.D. 70 as a type of the day of the Lord and to the eschatological day of the Lord itself. So those are the primary four views that scholars give us. Now all three of the synoptic gospels reveal that Jesus Christ pronounced judgment upon the temple and upon the Jewish leaders of that day and that God's glory had left the temple. And Jesus leaving the temple was a visual picture of God's glory leaving the temple. The word that we mentioned last week is Ichabod, that his glory has left. Now, we're not sure how much the disciples understood as Jesus left the temple, but he got their attention earlier when it was stated in Matthew 23, 38, your house is left to you desolated. Now, we see there in verse 1 that the disciple, we don't know what disciple it was. It possibly was Peter, but that's just a guess on my behalf because Peter was the one always asking questions and making statement. But we don't know who this disciple was, but we see that he praised the temple. 
And it could have been due to this statement that Jesus made that is recorded there in Matthew chapter 23, verse 38. Your house is left to you desolate. Which led Jesus to make this next statement there in verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Maybe the disciple wanted to affirm with Jesus the majesty of the temple. Now we see that the disciples didn't immediately respond to Jesus as a statement that he had made, but they waited until they were on the Mount of Olives and they were sitting directly across from the temple in Jerusalem. And we see that the three or four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, asked him this question privately as stated there in verse 3. Now, all three Gospels record their question. When will these things be? Now, when Jesus made this statement in verse 2, the disciples thought he was talking about the end of the world, the end of the age, because they could not imagine that things would continue when the temple would be destroyed and Jerusalem destroyed. They had heard the prophecy from Daniel chapter 12, and they knew that there was a day coming, a time of trouble as mentioned in Daniel 12, and it would happen and all things would be finished. They had heard Jesus teach about the coming judgment that would be upon the Jewish leaders as well as the people who denied him as the Messiah. So therefore, the very question that they asked seems to be in relationship to Daniel chapter 12, verse 9, when they state there in verse 4, what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now clearly, the disciples linked the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem with the Son of Man coming at the end of the age or the end of the world as a single event. They did not see this as two separate events, one foreshadowing the other as Jesus was seeking to teach them. Now, as we look at verse 13, we need to come with a teachable mind to seek to understand what Jesus is seeking to teach his audience so that they might rightly apply truth to their life, that they might take the Word of God and understand what it's saying to them very personally. Now, I've often said that there's only one meaning to a text of Scripture, but many applications And it's our duty by the help and aid of the Holy Spirit to discover the one meaning and then make the application of that one meaning to our life. I've often heard people make statements such as this. That verse may mean that to you, but it means this to me. But that isn't the question. The question is, what does it mean to God? What did God intend for it to mean? not what does it mean to you or me. In other words, when God breathed His Word into existence through godly men who recorded it, what did He intend for that passage to mean to that particular audience? So when Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives and He spoke these words, how many meanings did He have when He was talking to the disciples? Well, He had only one meaning for them. When Peter spoke, of this particular event years later, and Mark recorded it, 
what was the purpose in him writing it down, recording this discourse. It was so that they would know exactly what Jesus said to the disciples. A lot of false teaching would be eliminated if teachers would remember what Alan Sibb's statement was that I made last week. Do not try to satisfy an unhealthy curiosity. It is a serious misuse of Scripture to try to make it disclose more than God has purposed to reveal. So we have to remember that. Let us not try to disclose more than God has purposed what a particular text says. Now we know that the Bible is without error. And no interpreter of the Bible is without error. Every time we come to study to God's Word, we must pray that the Holy Spirit would give us the truth from Scripture and keep us from error. Now, in verse 31, Jesus states that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. So he's clearly teaching us the truthfulness of his word and how his word endures forever. And Jesus continues to prepare the disciples so that they will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. They will be the ones who will pass this particular truth on to the next generation. So therefore, his word can be trusted. What Jesus says to them was very important for them, but also it was for believers that would come after them, those that would come after Pentecost and those that would come throughout the book of Acts as well as all the way through up to our generation. In In chapter 13, Jesus clearly predicts the future. We call it prophecy. And in Scripture, it has a meaning that was to be understood by its original audience. For instance, in Genesis chapter 3, God himself gave a prophecy that the serpent's head would be crushed by the one that would come. Of course, speaking of Christ, that prophecy was given to Adam and Eve. And when Eve gave birth to her first child, Cain, she said these words, I have gotten a man from the Lord. She thought that God was immediately giving them this Messiah. But yet we know that Cain was not the Messiah. And then, of course, when Seth was born, she said something similar. So she kept thinking that the Messiah was coming right away. Now, of course, we know that he did not come for another Many, many years, almost 4,000 years. Now, to put this particular fulfillment that is stated here in chapter 13, 2,000 years into the future, would mean that it had very little relevance for those who were hearing it at that time. Peter, James, Andrew, and John, and the other disciples. But what Jesus says has reverence to an event in their lifetime. And that's very clear, as I mentioned last week, there in verse 29 and verse 30, when Jesus says to them, so you also, when you see these things happening, so he's telling them, you're going to see these things happening. Know that it is near at the very door. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things 
take place. So Jesus is very clear that they're going to see it and it's going to happen in that particular generation. So we have to keep that in mind as we study this chapter. So Jesus is setting stage to reveal that the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed in their lifetime. And of course, this occurred in A.D. 70. So Jesus is speaking very specifically to his disciples about this astonishing event that is going to take place and it's going to destroy this extraordinary building and city in their lifetime. Now this morning, as I've already mentioned, I want to primarily zoom in on verse 1 and verse 2. Now we see, first of all, that this disciple's comment that is made there in verse 1 about this astonishing event. And he says there, or this astonishing temple, when he says to Jesus, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Now what we have to remember here is that to the Jew... The temple was everything. It's very difficult for us to understand how significant the temple was to the Jew. I guess something that maybe would compare to it would be like the people in New York when the Twin Towers were attacked in 9-11. To them, they never thought that these two towers would ever be destroyed. But to a greater extent, the temple was more significant to the Jews. Fifty years earlier, Harriet the Great decided to rebuild the temple, which had almost been completely destroyed. It, of course, was called the Second Temple, rebuilt in 516 after the Babylonian captivity. It was very modest compared to the Temple of Solomon, which was completely destroyed by the Babylonians Babylonians in 587 B.C. But when the temple was severely damaged between 200 and 150 B.C. during the Maccabean period, Herod the Great decided in B.C. 20 that he would completely refurbish the temple and originally the structure would be completely overhauled and be a much larger, magnificent structure than it was at that particular time. <clears throat> and it became one of the most impressive buildings in ancient architect. And it was set upon a hill. It was set between the valleys cut in on the side. And Herod planned this entire mountain to be the platform for the temple. He wanted to use the temple as something that would cause him to be more recognized. Now, the architect, first of all, required that this great platform be built so that the temple would sit upon it. And Herod actually brought in all the stones and all the dirt to be able to build the platform that the temple was to be based upon. He literally filled in the valleys surrounding that area to expand the foundation. So the Temple Mount was originally intended to be 1,600 feet wide, 900 feet broad, and nine stories high with 16-foot-thick walls. 
but it was never completed. Now, to help you understand what size that is, it would be five football fields deep wide and three wide deep. Some of the stones used in this particular building were actually 40 feet in length, 18 feet in width, and 9 feet in height, weighing as much as 100 tons. It's unimaginable how they would even move these particular stones into place without any machinery or manpower. But these stones were cut out and they were placed in their certain places. This platform also had a particular roof over it so that it would shield them from the sun and the rain. Now the temple itself took up a quarter of this particular space that was made for the temple and its outer courts. And it had a great altar also outside the temple. Josephus, the historian of that particular day, describes the building this way. The outward face of the temple in its far lack nothing that was likely to surprise either man's mind or their eyes. For it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fierce splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it turn their eyes away just as they would have done in looking at the sun's rays. This temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow for as to those parts it was not glitter. They were extremely white and blinding to the eyes. Now we understand that for the true Jew, the temple was the greatest part of their life. Now why was it so great to them? Of course, they saw the temple as where Yahweh, God, lived. They saw it as God's home. It was His focused presence. So they saw themselves as God's covenant people and therefore God chose to dwell in their midst. They were the chosen ones because all of the world was left apart from God, but yet God the Creator decided to dwell with them there in Jerusalem. So the temple was the dwelling place of the Most High God. But it's easy for us to fall into idolatry and worship a building instead of God. And this is exactly what had happened in that particular day. They were worshiping the building more than they were worshiping the true and living God. Now it's easy for us to understand how this could happen. If you've ever been in any kind of significant building of worship where the architect has all of the different colors, the paintings, the imagery, the statues, and all of these things that can make a person feel very religious. There can be a sense of deity. You can become very touched as your eyes are attracted to all of the beauty of the temple. But God has clearly stated to us that there's no such thing as a high and holy place whereby you put your hope and your trust in it. 
There is now no such thing as a physical sanctuary in which God exists. Even Solomon himself declared, But will God indeed dwell with men on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. But due to man's depravity of heart, he always gravitates toward that which is visible, that which is tangible. The reformers always sought to remove any images from worship that would cause idolatry to the place. Matter of fact, Martin Luther preached eight sermons in eight days on this very thing, instructing the people not to look to imagery, but to look to God and God alone. Jesus was pointing out that if any place is security, anyone that places their security in anything but Him, they will be destroyed, they will be judged. And this is what exactly is happening to the temple. Because nothing in the temple and nothing that the priest did in the temple could save them from their sins, that only Christ could save them. As the hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And the disciples needed to have a right understanding that it was Christ and Christ alone, not the temple, that was their salvation. Now second, we have Jesus' reply to this disciple and his comment there in verse 2. Jesus didn't, or Jesus did the same thing that Jeremiah and Micah did. He predicted the destruction of the temple just as they did in their day. In Jeremiah chapter 7, if you'll turn with me, if you have your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 4 it says, Do not trust in these lying words saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And then verse 12 following. But go now to my place which was in Shallow, where I set what I did to it, because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, says the Lord, I have spoken to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do this to this house, which is called my in my name and in which you trust and to this place, which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. So we see that he is prophesying what will happen to the temple, just as what happened to Shiloh when judgment fell upon that place. And then Micah says in chapter three, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion, shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruin, and the mountain of the temple shall be bare hills of the forest. Did these prophecies come true? Most certainly. Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 587. Likewise, was Jesus a prophet? Yes, we see quite clearly what Jesus states here is exactly what happens in A.D. 70. So as Jesus looks at the temple with his disciples and he says, 
Do you see all of these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So he is stating that this magnificent, this extraordinary building would be destroyed. In about 40 years after Jesus spoke these words to them, that which seemed impossible to them came about in 70 A.D. Now, during Jesus' ministry, it was reasonable, it was a reasonable, peaceful time between the Jews and the Romans. And this, of course, allowed Jesus to go about teaching and not being interrupted, as well as the disciples and even Paul following him. But after his ascension, things began to change very quickly. The Roman government became more actively involved in seeking to put Christianity down. They had sided with the Jews and they were used by the Jews to persecute the church. And we know that the Jewish nation continued to persecute the church. We see that even in Saul of Tarlus, who had a latter letter from the high priest to put Christians in prison, even to put them to death. We know what happened to Jesus' half-brother James. In 62 A.D., his head was severed from his body there in Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John were put in prison and beaten for preaching Jesus. We also know that the Jews used the power of the Roman state to hurt the early church, but yet the church continued to grow. Later, Paul and Silas were put in prison, and Paul was eventually uh, in prison and sent to Rome, and we know that Paul himself even lost his life for preaching the gospel. Now, ultimately, the Zealots were victorious over what we call the Moderate Party. The Moderate Party, which included the Sadducees, wanted to get along with the Romans, wanted to continue to have their freedom with Rome, but yet the Zealot Party wanted their freedom apart from Rome. And the Zealot Party is the ones that took over the power there in Jerusalem. Josephus again tells us in book number 6, which is called the Wars of the Jews, about the widespread wars that were taking place during that time throughout the Roman Empire. Another historian, Tactius, in his book, Annuals says in 70, from 30 AD to 70 AD that there were tremendous wars all across the Roman Empire, all the way up into what is now known as Britain, Germany, France, and the Middle East. And in AD 64, Nero blamed the fire there in Rome on the Christians, igniting even greater persecution against the Christians throughout the empire. Now, there were three major rebellions by the Jews against the Roman Empire at this time. And these resulted in Jewish towns being destroyed and Jews being displaced. The Great Revolution began in the year 66, originating in Rome and by the Romans against the Jewish religious leaders. And the tension began to escalate. And due to the anti-taxation protest and the attack upon the Roman citizens by the Jews. Now, the Roman governor, Gessus Florus, 
responded by plundering the temple, claiming that the money was for the emperor. And then the next day he launched a rage against the city and arrested a number of the senior Jews. And this prompted a large-scale rebellion by the Jews against the Roman military. And they quickly ran the Romans out of Jerusalem. And while they were seeking to do this, we see that Herod Agrippa II also left Jerusalem at this particular time and fled with the other Roman officials. Now, as the rebellion got out of control, General Cestius Gallus surrounded Jerusalem and he tried to restore order. He tried to quell the revolution. Now, despite his advancement into the city for some reason or another, we don't know why, he eventually retreated. And there was great confusion among the Roman army. As a result of his retreating, he lost his command because there was 5,000 soldiers that were killed as a result of what took place. And Bethsaida was appointed by Nero to take his place and given four legions of Roman soldiers to go up against Rome. And he led an army against Galilee in 67 AD, forming a stronghold there for several months. And thousands of zealot Jews there in Galilee escaped to Jerusalem and they came into the city for their protection. Now, Simon bar Gero and 15,000 men were invited into Jerusalem by the Sadducees to help them against the zealots there. And they quickly took control of the city, but yet there was bitter infighting between the Zelochs and the other religious leaders and their men. Following a brutal seven-month siege, during this time, the Zelochs were fighting, refusing to side with the religious leaders of that particular day, and they eventually even burned up the entire food supply of the city. And, of course, this led to starvation in the city, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a latter sermon. Now, in 69, Vespasian came emperor after Nero had committed suicide, and his son Titus became the general of the army, And in April of 70 A.D., he surrounded Jerusalem just before the Passover. And, of course, as a result of the Passover, that meant thousands or literally over a million Jews were in the city of Jerusalem. Therefore, this large number of Jews were surrounded by the Romans on the outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, Titus finally attacked the city in July, but did not successfully conquer Jerusalem until September the 8th. Now, the Zealots used the temple as their final fortress so that the Roman soldiers disregarded Titus's order, which was not to destroy the temple. He did not want the temple destroyed. He saw it as some kind of sacred place, and he was going to turn it into a place for their gods. But yet, as a result of the zealots moving into the temple, therefore, the Roman soldiers went into the temple to destroy them. 
And it said that as a result, when they got into the temple and they ran all the Jews out, they wanted the gold and they began to try to burn the gold off the wall. And that caught the temple on fire. And then eventually it was completely destroyed. Josephus claims that 1.1 million people were killed during this time of the siege. But the sad thing about it, the majority of the Jews that were killed, it is said, were killed not by the Roman soldiers, but by each other, between the zealots and the moderates. And then 97,000 were enslaved during this time. Now I want to close this sermon by reminding you what Jesus told the religious leaders in the cleansing of the temple the first time found in Mark, I mean in John chapter 2 verse 19. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now of course we know that Jesus was talking about his body to the religious leaders. But they did not understand that. And of course, they responded to him by saying it took 46 years to build the temple and you will raise it up in three days. Now, of course, two days after what has transpired here in this discourse with his disciples, we know that Jesus is arrested there in the Garden of Gethsemane. They did all that they could to end the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. We know that they arrested him at night. They tried him unjustly, falsely accused him, leading him to the Sanhedrin and then to Pilate and then to Herod and then back to Pilate. And one of the things that the wicked used at his trial was this very passage that we just read that is found there in the next chapter of Mark. Mark chapter 14 beginning in verse 56, we see that it is said, for many, ball, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made with hands. Now, of course, we know that's not exactly what Jesus said. His words were a little bit different. But yet they were using this against him, trying to make sure that the Roman government would put him to death. But yet three different times, Pilate declared Jesus as being innocent, even though Jesus never answered any of his questions. But Pilate turned Jesus over to religious leaders of his day who wanted to put him to death. And he gave them the authority to use the Roman soldiers to fulfill their wicked actions. So therefore we know that they took Jesus and they beat Jesus and they mocked him and they nailed him to the cross. They hung him between two criminals. They placed him in a tomb. They sealed the tomb with the governor's signer. And then they put a Roman guard or two Roman guards outside the entrance of his tomb to just make sure, as they thought, the disciples would steal his body. And of course, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, they mocked him. And one of the things they said to him there in Matthew twenty-eight forty, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." 
Then after they put him in the tomb, this is what was said. Sir, we remembered while he was still alive how the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. They did everything humanly possible to make sure that Jesus did not fulfill that which he had promised. But they could not keep him in the tomb. They could not keep him in the grave. They could not keep him from keeping his promise. Destroy this temple and in three days I will rise, raise it up. And that's exactly what happened. We know that he now sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and bringing judgment upon nations. He controls all things that happen. And one day he will return for his elect and bring judgment upon all who reject him. And the judgment of the temple cannot be compared to the judgment that is to come. And the judgments that we incur even during our lifetime remind us of the future judgment that is coming. This virus that is going around in this nation today as well as throughout the world is a judgment of God. And this judgment of God is to remind us that there's a greater judgment that is coming upon all people. And if those people do not repent of their sins and trust in Christ and Christ alone, they will experience a greater judgment that is to come. May God make us all aware of the coming judgment so that we will flee to Christ in repentance and in faith, so that we might trust in Him and Him alone as our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these words of Jesus, and we pray that as we think upon the judgment of the temple and the judgment of Jerusalem, that we would realize that there is a greater judgment that is coming and that we must flee to Christ before that judgment comes. This we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.